We're in Genesis chapter 1, as you know. Uh, I hope you know that. If you don't know that, you now do know that. So we're beginning the study of a new uh, book, and we had studied the prophetic material uh, throughout the Bible, really, but uh, ending up with Revelation. And then uh, we thought we'd study this book. This is uh, the book of beginnings. We spent uh, almost all of last week on verse 1, and we're not done with it yet. So we have a couple of more things that I want to try to to say. Um, A couple of things of review that are very important. I look at verse 1 as a title for the first chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we looked at just an important reminder, because these are very, very important terms. The term for God there, the title or name for God, if you will, there is Elohim. I wrote that on the board last week. I won't write up again. But there are several important names for God that you will see in these early chapters. Each one is revelatory. Each one is explaining something about him. He is Elohim. He created the Greek, uh, excuse me, the Hebrew word there is bara, B-A-R-A, only in the Bible is it used of God as the subject. In other words, God created. It is never used of humans creating. And thirdly, about verse 1, heavens and earth, it is what we call a merism. Uh, that's just a figure of speech. But that's a very common figure in writing and, and communication. But you're talking about the two opposites and everything in between. So it's another way of saying God created everything. And then that it will be specified in the next several verses. Verse 2 is a problematic verse. It really is. And um, part of the problem is the words that the the writer Moses uses here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The earth was without form, void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Appropriately and properly, we should put a period there. So it's saying something. Um, And it is a very difficult verse to put into how we look at things. But it is important to note, and this is, again, just about where we left off last week, words like without form, void, and darkness are not positive words. They are never used positively in the Bible. And especially the term darkness and the term void are used in the Bible and this is Hebrew, so it would largely be in the Old Testament, of words associated with judgment. And so it, it is hinting at something. And this is the problem. God just doesn't tell us this. He doesn't explain this to us. He doesn't tell us when it happened. He doesn't tell us how to fit it into a timeline. But many think, or at least suggest, that this reflects God's judgment as a result of the rebellion of Satan and his minions, his demons, if you will. Um, And so instead of seeing, now this is really important, God creates, and again, I'm trying to infer this, and it's just, it's very difficult to prove it, but it seems as if God creates, and the very first thing that he creates is the spirit world. Angels, demons who rebel against him. All angels are good. They are, they are to be his servants. Angel means messenger or servant of God. But the Bible tells us in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 that one of those beings led a rebellion against God. And he gets the title of Satan, devil, the Obama. He has lots of titles throughout the Bible. And it, it would seem at least reasonable although it's just impossible to prove it, but it would seem reasonable that part of verse 2 is the result of that rebellion. God judges. There's chaos. There's disorder. And words without form, void, darkness, all reflect chaos. Over the face of the deep. And the hard, the hard thing is to understand what deep means and what earth means. Because God is about to, and this is a way to think about this, God is about to take out of the chaos and disorder, order, stability, and that which is good. You will see the word good 
repeated again and again and again and again in this, in this chapter and actually in other parts of the book as well. But good in Hebrew is a word associated with order and that which is conducive to life. The word good is associated with order and that which is conducive to life. So when you're in 2A, first part of verse 2, is it orderly and conducive to life? No. God has to do something. And so one of the themes that is consistent through the book of, of, of Genesis, indeed, actually throughout the entire book, all books of the Bible, is God recreates out of disorder and dysfunction. He will do that after he judges the earth with the flood. That flood will create disorder, chaos, and destroy all life. Then God has to recreate. In the sense that he has to remake the earth. He saves, he rescues, uh, salvages a family and each representative of life and then starts over again. After the cross, as a result of the new covenant blessings that come through the death, burial, and resurrection, the Lord God recreates in the sense that you and I are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. All things have, all things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Will God do it? He will do it one more time. After the establishment of his son's kingdom, and at the end, when he judges everything at the great white throne, he then recreates again with a new heaven and new earth. You see what I'm saying? The disorder and the chaos that is created as a result of rebellion, God remakes, recreates, and starts over. But when he recreates the final time, he won't have to ever start over again. Because rebellion, evil, sin, Satan, everything will be destroyed. But in, in order for God to make the kind of world he wants to make, where his creatures willingly and volitionally and intentionally decide to worship him, he must create a kind of world where they could choose not to worship him. So I'm kind of throwing a lot on the table for you to think about, because honestly, the first part of verse 2 is a problematic passage. It's a very difficult passage. I don't think anybody in this room knows who Tennessee Ernie Ford is. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Fred, I, I didn't mean to interrupt a very serious question. <laughs> but anyhow, um, are we, what was their, their um, eternal destiny? Can, do we have enough information to know? I know it's jumping ahead, but we alluded to it, and, I just, and these are big categories. So are all those people separated eternally from God? Or that um, Noah, his wife, there are three sons and their wives? It would seem that the way Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 is laid out for us, it would be just Noah and his family are the only ones that are saved out of that. The language of that passage doesn't seem to allow the freedom to interpret any other way. Rob? I'm jumping ahead, I guess, a little bit. You're um, jumping ahead like he did. Yes. Yeah, but not as far. Um, in verse 4, 5, God called the light day and the darkness night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And I, I just have to think, Jews divide their days starting at sundown. So the Sabbath begins Friday night, not Saturday. Does that come out of this verse? Because he mentions evening first. Evening and the morning were the first day. Partially, and also because, of course, the seventh day where God rests is Shabbat. That's the Hebrew word for Sabbath, is a day of rest. And they follow that same format that it begins. But it's also 
because when Moses institutes this as a part of the law, God explains to him, this is how I want you to institute the Sabbath. It begins sundown Friday, uh, how we would, they didn't call it Friday, called it something else, but sundown Friday through sundown Saturday. God instructed them to do it that way. But I believe God is following the pattern that he followed in chapter one. But it is specific instruction in the law in, Gen in Exodus 20 and several other places. We're still in verse 2, but it's all right. It's all right. Keep asking the questions. Is, is, the, is the thought or your thought that God created the earth in some form and then there was rebellion and then it became formless and void? That's that's part of that's part of the challenge, Joel, of interpreting this. But it would uh, um, let me just suggest something because it is really difficult. This is just a a uh, it's a real problematic part of the of the account because of the words that he's using. It just creates issues for us. It really does. But that perhaps a scenario is something like this, and I, um, I'm probably not going to do very good uh, justice to it, that be God begins his creative work. Does he just create matter? And because it is consistent with the way God does things, he shapes, molds, creates, recreates, and so on. And it was that, as, a, as that occurs, then this rebellion in the heavenlies occurs. And the consequence of that rebellion in the heavenlies is what you see. These very negative uh, words, these very words that are always associated with judgment. And, and, and it, would be obs it would be absolutely correct and clear to say, whatever has God has done in Genesis 2, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, it is not conducive to life. It is not conducive to order. It is not conducive to stability. He has to do something else. And what many are suggesting, I studied under one of the top Semitic scholars in the United States, indeed in the world. He's, uh, he's one of the most uh, significant scholars in this whole area. He has written some of the best stuff on how to deal with these words and, and understand these words and how they're used in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. His name is Alan Ross, and the title of his book is Creation and Blessing. Creation and, and Blessing. Woody. Probably the only person that don't know who wrote Genesis. Moses. And I have any more questions for the, the angelic beings. Created, or were they in existence from eternity past? Or? Well, well, I I don't know. I don't know if you want to put it in eternity past, but it it seems logical. And as a matter of fact, the text demands it, because Genesis one and two, God creates and puts His image bearers and so on, and then Satan shows up. Genesis three one. It's very clear that Satan. Genesis, Revelation 12, verse 9 tells us it's Satan. Many other places do. So you have to infer Satan was created, which we know he is, and we know that the rebellion of Satan and his minions occurred before Genesis 3. So it is often, and it's just, Joe, I can't answer the question definitively, but it seems reasonable the way the texts throughout the Old Testament keep presenting it is that before or let me put it another way. The very first thing God creates is the spirit world. He creates his angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, all the orders of angels, and it is a portion of them led by Lucifer who rebel against God. When does that occur? The Bible does not tell us when it occurs. The Bible doesn't give us any specific, except that in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, that it happened. But we then infer and draw conclusions it had to have happened for this because he shows up and does these evil, devious things. So it had to occur. So again, I mean, it, it, again, it just seems reasonable that the very first thing God creates is the spirit world. By, by that, I mean, you know, the, the angels and so on. And therefore, um, 
because they are created beings with intents and purposes that he wants them to do, which perhaps means he also creates material, that is matter, etc. And that's what needs to be shaped, molded, crafted, so to speak. Now, we're really getting, I'm, I'm getting beyond a level of certainty here, and I'm uncomfortable with doing that. So I'm going to stop. Look at the second half of verse 2. Finally, we're in the second half of verse 2. Appropriately, I think we should see this as another sentence. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So again, the assumption is, just from the language of verse 2, that God has begun his creative work, but nothing is conducive to life. Nothing is conducive to order. God must continue to shape, recreate, etc. And so what you have in the second half of verse 2 is a sense of hope, of expectation, of and deliberate, intentional acts of God as creator. He is not going to settle with a creation that is without form, formless, void, and darkness. He's not going to settle for that. He has to do something else. And so therefore, verse 3, and through the rest of this chapter, explains to us, and we are to understand it, I, I, don't, I honestly don't know how else to understand it, that God is doing this deliberately, intentionally, in a step-by-step process. And so if you look at my notes on page 2, the first three days deal with creating a universe of order and form, an order and structure. And each element of his creative work, he will, he will declare it to be good. And what does that mean? Condu- that which is conducive to order, that which is conducive to life. So, are you with me? I'm, I'm trying to... What do you mean by life? What's conducive to life? To life. To all forms of life. Not just human, but all forms of life. All right, verse 1. And God said... That's kind of important. And God said... Let there be light. So what are we to infer from that? God spoke these things into existence. I mean, you think, well, duh, of course he did. But don't make it a duh. It is, it is a very important statement of God's creative decisions. He speaks things into existence. It becomes what he says. That's excellent. That's an excellent way to put it. And it is for that reason that he really creates. This is Latin. We don't speak in Latin, but it's usually associated, but from nothing. In other words, at one point, there was nothing. At another point, there's something. What moves things from nothingness to somethingness? They're terrible words, but you get the point. God speaks. You following? At one point, there's nothing. At another point, there's something. Why? Because God spoke it into existence. And so you you have this, you have something then, it's really important to make these connections in the Bible, it then helps you to understand something that's in the first couple of verses of a gospel, the gospel of John. In the beginning, exactly paralleling Genesis 1-2, uh, 1-1, excuse me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You follow me? There is a parallel, and it's intentional, it's very clear the parallel between Genesis 1 and John 1. 
John 1 is giving singular focus to Jesus as the living word who was the creator as a part of the Trinitarian relationship of God. What Genesis 1 is telling us is there's a point when there was no light and God creates light. How does he do it? By speaking it into existence. Let there be light and there was light. And the text says in verse 2, And God saw that the light was good, that which brings order, that which is conducive to life. Light is a necessity of life, all forms of life. We're entering into spring, at least from what they tell me today isn't going to be much of a spring day, but at some point we're going to have spring. And what happens in spring is stuff starts coming out of the ground, but what draws the stuff out of the ground? Well, it's the warmth of the earth and so on, but it's sun. And if you know enough about photosynthesis, I hope you remember that from your biology days in high school, photosynthesis is absolutely necessary for life because it creates the plants and so on that we eat and the animals eat and all that stuff, and it's just that cycle of life. If you didn't have light, there would be no life. So the very first thing God does is he creates that first essential element for life, all forms of life depend on light. And God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day and the darkness night. And I forget, one of you read that. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. It's just, it's denominating out for us. And I don't, at this point, I don't want to get into that yet. But that God is taking his first day of activity. However, we're going to understand day. We'll get to that in a minute. He creates light. Secondly, okay, so again, if you're following your notes, that what I'm trying to get, what is God doing? He's taking out of the words of Genesis 1, 2a, words of disorder, dysfunction, chaos, judgment, whatever all of those mean, and he's going to bring order out of it. And the first thing he does is separate light from darkness. Secondly, and let there be an, it's a very, very difficult Hebrew word to translate. Let there be an expanse. Some of your translations have firmament. Some of your translations might have canopy. In the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, the firmament, the canopy, separated the waters from, under the expanse from the waters that are above the expanse. And he called the expanse heaven. There was evening and morning the second day. What God is doing here is he's, there's probably no other way to think about this than God is creating the atmosphere. He's creating the atmosphere that is also conducive, but please note, he does not yet declare it to be good until you get to the end of verse 10. Because the atmosphere, the canopy, and we know the function of that, it helps keep the, the destructive elements of the light out and all that stuff. He's creating that canopy, that atmosphere that will contain the oxygen we need to breathe, the right balance of nitrogen and hydrogen, all of that stuff that is needed for life to be able to exist. But he hasn't declared it good yet. Why? Because of verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. Then he declares it to be good. So what has God done? He's created the atmosphere, the canopy that is protected, but also sustaining for life. It's got the elements, the oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen. All, um, it has to be that what's involved. And then he, separate, he takes the planet... Because the focus is now earth, he takes the planet and takes the waters below the canopy and gathers them around land masses. Or putting it another way, creates the land masses around the, the water. And he just separates the two. And he says, now it's good. Now it is conducive to order and conducive to life. Tom. You know, the experience, I think our class 25 years ago like this, Expands, but the expanse around the earth was probably all the same temperature, right? I mean, it wasn't like cold. I mean, the expanse caused that. And I know they said that the expanse on there it kept the harmful 
elements coming into the earth. That's why people live so that, you know, it has life to before the flood, you see, like, this will live in 950 years and different things. And, the, and then after the flood, there's the expanse fell, and that was part of the flood that fell because they didn't have rain that, that just came from the expanse. That we will. We will get to that when we get to Genesis six. But you're, but you're you're right. I mean, here again, we're we're drawing conclusions about things that are being stated here and, and not inaccurate conclusions. But that's right because it will tell us a little later on in this section that it doesn't rain yet. It does not rain until the flood, which is re interesting. We'll talk about that, but. It is apparent, and it seems to be the way that we are to look at this, because nothing else has been created. Next, next item of God's creation is vegetation, but nothing else has been created. But God is creating, he's giving out of this formless, void, chaotic, perhaps judged area, that which is now conducive to life. And he's putting the structures and the form and order that will be conducive to life, which he's about to do. In verse 11. But we're not quite there yet. All right. Third day. We're in the middle of it. And God said, verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And so it was. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind of tree. Trees bearing fruit in their own seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It was evening, morning, the third day. Okay, what's happening in the middle of the third day? He is creating vegetation, fertility. That's a very, very, very important concept. Fertility. The ability of life to reproduce itself. Don't miss that. And you'll see that again as we move into the next couple of days. But as a part of what God is doing, God is creating life. First part of life in verse 11 and 5 is vegetation. But this vegetation has the capacity to reproduce itself. And the only way it can reproduce itself, all forms of life, if the conditions are good, i.e., orderly and conducive to life. You following? Because you could create—I know you know this—but you could create a plant, and if that plant is not living in an environment that's conducive to life, what will happen to it? It not only will not reproduce; it'll die. Vegetation must have a certain amount of order, structure, characteristics, and atmosphere, moisture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in order to sustain life. And that's what God is doing. So a, as a part, this is really, 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 really important for the ancient Jewish person to hear and to understand. Because when God creates the nation of Israel, when he forms the nation of Israel and gives them their land, what kind of neighborhood do they live in? It's a tough neighborhood. It's a neighborhood surrounded by polytheistic, animistic, pagan worship. And every single god and goddess that was a part of the ancient world was associated with fertility. Baal, remember Baal from the Old Testament? Baal was a fertility god. And his wife, his consort, Asherah, and it was his sperm that would seed the earth. And so part of what the pagans did is they would reenact through immoral acts what Baal was doing with Asherah. So associated with his fertility cults was gross immorality. What did the people of Israel learn? Fertility is a direct, specific act of creation of our God. We don't have to reenact it. We don't have to go through it every year and go through all the motions of God, that he created a functioning universe where fertility is a part of what he's created. Do you understand what I'm saying? You read something like this, it's just, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. That's good. But it's just incredibly decisive. 
It's incredibly important. And for the person in the pagan ancient Near Eastern world, as well as for the postmodern person in year 2016, God created this kind of universe. You may reject that. You may say, oh, it's just a product of mindless, random forces of evolution. There's no direction to it. There's no purpose to it. Some people believe that. Many people believe that. Perhaps most people believe that. I'm not sure there's ever been a good survey done. But what this is telling us is God created a world that is a world of order, a world of structure, and a world that is conducive to life. And fertility, the capacity for life to reproduce itself as part of what he's created. Do the forms and species of life adapt to their environment? Of course, that's the way God made his world. If you want to call that microevolution, I don't have any problem with that. But what all, all God is doing is he's creating everything that's necessary for life, and he's creating life that has the capacity to reproduce itself. Fertility is not sourced in some pagan god. Fertility is sourced in God. That's the kind of universe he created. And again, when you start thinking of it that way, then you start, oh, I'm really understanding why Genesis 1 is really important to us. It helps you put together your worldview. That's either a worldview that's sourced in God and his goodness and his purpose. Because then we have to understand, that's what Genesis, we have to, what happens to this world? That's the tragedy of Genesis 3. Because this world joins the rebellion against him. And so that means he's got to remake it because his world is going to be cursed by sin and revival. But I'm getting ahead of the story. So I'm still, my goal was to finish chapter one. I'm not sure we're going to make it. But are you with me? I'm trying to really make this very, very, very familiar passage come alive to you and why it is such a foundational passage. I have no idea if I'm succeeding. The only way I can have an idea if I'm succeeding is if I give you a quiz. That's not a good plan, is it? All right, I won't do it. Verse 14. Now, in your notes, I called this fullness and harmony. Okay, God's created the order and form of his world. Now he's going to continue so that there can be fullness and harmony. He wants his earth filled with life. That's what he wants. Let there be lights in the heavens to separate day and night. I'm in verse 14. Let there be signs for seasons, for days and years, and let these lights be in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth. And it was all so, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. From earth perspective, that's the sun and the moon. But I want you to notice something. This is very, very, very important. Who created time? God did. Because time is tied to the movement of the heavenly bodies, isn't it? The answer to that is yes. Yeah. Nobody's answering yes, but yeah. it is time. We just, are, when was that? Uh, Sunday? Wasn't Sunday the first day of spring, or was that Saturday? Sunday. Was it Sunday? Okay, Sunday. Okay, now what is what is that? I mean, the first day is a beautiful day. We just, but really, Sunday is, or Sunday was, vernal equinox. And what's that mean? It's the position of the earth as it's revolving in an ellipse around the sun. And it is that one unique point in terms of the distance of the earth from the sun, et cetera, et cetera. And we name it vernal equinox. It's a world of order. It's a world of structure. It's a world of predictability. Who created it that way? Genesis chapter 1, verse 14 tells us God created it that way so that we can structure our time based on the movement of the heavenly bodies that he has created. And is it certain? Is it predictable? Is it reliable? Well, yes, I've worn one of these for all my life. And my kids said, Dad, why do you wear a watch? And you know why? They tell me, because you now have a iPhone. You don't need a watch. That tells you the time. And it has an alarm on it. You, I know, but I'm in the habit for 60, I'm 69 years old almost, for 68 plus months of my life, I've always worn a watch. I, I didn't wear a watch when I was a baby, but you know what I mean. They told they want you to get an Apple 
Oh, is that what? Yeah, well, they, that's never going to happen. But, of course, my wife said to my kids, I'm never going to get an iPhone. You know what she got for Christmas? An iPhone. <laughs> and not because I, I mean, that's what she wanted for Christmas. So I don't know why I'm saying all that. But the, the, the important point, this is, I hope you're not missing this. The important point of this is not only does God create the lights that both warm and give light to the planet Earth, it is also the basis of time. God designed it that way because it's predictable, it's reliable, it's tied to the movement of something that God set up. Okay, I find that exciting, but we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class. <clears throat> yes. Just a, just a yeah. quick point. This is random, but uh, I remember Tim Keller talking about the order versus random uh, debate about are we here just by a random accident versus are we here by, by God's order. And he was talking about the, uh, the scientific odds of this being a random event that we're here and that we have the order are so astronomical. The only way that you could possibly um, put it in human terms would be um, playing poker and drawing four aces for about 200 straight hands. And he's like, is that possible to randomly happen? <laughs> yes. But if I'm in the old west and that happens, I'm going to get shot. Nobody's going to honestly believe you could possibly draw that many times in a row. I yeah. just, that made me think of that. I have, I've seen, I, I've heard that message yeah. that yeah. Tim Keller gave. That's a great message. But, uh, and I, I, there is another figure that goes, but it's like something to some pound, so many zeros. It's just, it's, it is an astronomical number that all of this could occur by randomness, by chance. It really is. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, when the disciples were on the boat and and you know he comes and they ask what kind of man is this mm -hmm. that even the winds will obey him you know obey. Mm -hmm. and um, so are we saying that that Christ is the creator here or are we saying I know it's it, it's the Trinity but can you break that out a little bit with clarity God I mean it's very clear it's God and the Trinity mm -hmm. is one. Um, well, we, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, which are co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential, that's a theological way to talk about them, are all involved in the creative act. We read in Genesis 1, chapter, uh, uh, verse 2, second part, and the Spirit is hovering, you know, the sense of anticipation. It's not going to stay formless, void, and darkness. Whatever that means, the judgment of it's going to stay that way. And so it's the spirit. There's that anticipation. And from John chapter 1, we know that the Lord Jesus was a part of that. In the beginning was the word, word, et cetera, plus the thought. So it's the Trinitarian God that is very much involved in all this. So that is why, um, I mean, Paul does this in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He makes it very, very clear that Jesus is the creator. For by him all things were created, he says in verse 16. So I mean, it's very clear, but we also saw the spirit. So all three are co-equally involved in the creative acts of bringing out of nothing something. All right, again, ideally I wanted to finish this. I'm not sure we'll get there. But look at, uh, continuing, and light rolled by night and the stars. So you have the moon and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, separate the light from dark. God saw that it was good again. Good. Bring order. That was just conducive to life. Now verse 20 is day five. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. Let the birds fly over the, above the earth, over the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, species, and every winged bird according to its kind, species, and God saw that it was good. Now, don't miss verse 22. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and the birds multiply on the earth, evening, morning, fifth day. Okay, two things about this aspect of, uh, of day five. God creates all of the creatures of the water and all the creatures of the air. And he creates with the ability for them to multiply, fertility, with the command, I want my earth filled with life. I want my creation 
planet Earth, filled with life, has he created all the resources necessary for them to fill the Earth with life? Yes, he has. He's created the vegetation, he's created the oxygen, he's created the water, everything that is conducive to life, he's created it. And now he's creating the animals on the land and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. I, I shouldn't say animals. He hasn't created the animals. That's coming up in the next uh, verse. So, I mean, you see what he's doing step by step. He's now bringing fullness and harmony to his world. But he has one more thing to do. Who's going to rule over this? Who's going to have dominion authority over this world? Amen. That's right. Humanity is going to. It's, it's an extraordinary. We are at an extraordinary part of the Bible right here. Verse 24 through the end of this chapter, really into chapter 2, is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. It's so familiar to it, we miss it. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth, okay, you go on waters, air, fifth day, now he's on planet earth, bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth, according to their kinds, 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 that's species. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, livestock according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, God saw that it was good. Verse 26, let us, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, I want to stop here for a minute. There are several things about the first part of verse 26 I want to stress. First of all, please note the plural, let us. That does not prove the Trinity, but it allows for the Trinity. Like Elohim, one of the names of God, we saw in the first second word of, of verse uh, one of chapter one. It allows for that. It is a plural pronoun, but it's a plural of majesty. It is not unusual for that to be used of a single individual or single entity, but it allows for the Trinity. And as the Bible continues to unfold, we see more and more evidence that God is Trinity. So it allows for it. Secondly, it's important to understand that man, it's the, the Hebrew word for man is Adam, a D-A-M, which is a, which will be used gender specific for male, but it also is used generically for all of life, for all of humans. So because of what he says, because of what he says in, um, in, the, in the verses that follow, this is male and female, let us create humanity would be appropriate to translate it that way in our image after our likeness. All right, now, we have, we have a very, very, very important term here, image. Okay, we have image here. In our likeness. So, first of all, that word in our likeness is similar to us. Similar, similar. It's a similarity. I'm going to talk about that similarity in a minute. But the image concept, what does that mean? <clears throat> I have boiled it down. This is a very complicated theological concept that's developed throughout the scripture. But there are two aspects to image bearer, and it's easy to remember, and it's sort of intentional on my part, but there are two R's. <laughs> that just makes it a little easy to remember. To be in the image of God means we resemble God, and we represent God. And you'll see why this, because this is what follows. But we resemble God. This is part of the idea of likeness. We are similar to God. We resemble God. In what way? Omniscient? No. Omnipotent? No. no. Omnipresent? No. So what some theologians have done, I find that helpful, maybe other ways, but what some theologians have done, we resemble God in three ways. There's, there's really probably more than that, but this, in intellect, in emotion, and in will. 
we resemble God. Again, I think it's more than that, but this really helps us to get our arms around this idea. Okay, in what ways do we resemble God? We already concluded not in you know eternal eternality, immutability, omniscience. No. Is God a reasoning being? Is God, I mean, yes. And God says, I want you to love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Humanity has intellectual power, intellectual capacity, reasoning abilities. Emotion. Is God an emotional being? Yes. You read of God breaking his heart, of Judah, Israel, breaking his heart, of God being jilted, of God being hurt. God is emotional. God loves. God communicates. God's emotional. He creates beings who are emotional. God creates all of our emotions. That's what makes us distinctive, among other things. And a will. That's a very important character. We have a will. We're not robots. We're not automatons. We don't hear a trumpet and immediately bow down to God. No, we we are encouraged, we're commanded, we're instructed to willfully and joyfully and lovingly respond to our Creator Redeemer. So at least we can say to resemble God, it means we have intellect, emotion, and will. We're not robots. We're not mechanical beings. It's the beauty of what God, so he creates, human. does not say this of any other part of his creation except humanity. We are created in his image. We're similar to him. And please note, as this continues, let them have dominion. If you don't have that word underlined in your Bible, you should underline that. That is extraordinarily important. We are now at the apex, the crown of God's creative work. He has given the human race dominion, authority over his world. Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the livestock of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, 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 he created them. Amen. I don't, I've said that about five times. God creates with gender specificity. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I repeat, underline dominion, and then notice subdue, or some of your translations might have rule. Here is a way to say this. To be in the image of God means we are the theocratic stewards of God. We are his stewards over his world. Does sin, does the rebellion that we read in Genesis 3, negate that? No, it doesn't negate that. Because that will be repeated. It will be repeated to Noah in chapter 9. Throughout the, in Psalm 8, we'll see it. In Hebrews, we'll see it. The dominion authority of the human race over God's world has not been withdrawn because of the rebellion. It's just a lot more difficult. In my book on ethics, I have a chapter on the environment, on the ethical obligations we have to the environment. So here's the question. I'm going to throw it out. It could be controversial. Should a Christian, should a person who loves and worships Almighty God be an environmentalist? Mandatorily or optionally? That's not how I'm asking the question. <laughs> should a Christian who loves the Lord, worships the Lord, is devoted to the Lord, understands what it means to be an image bearer, be an environmentalist? I'm not talking about a Sierra Club environmentalist. I would, I would what I'm saying is should because what is it? We just read it. Dominion authority to rule. That means we have a stewardship responsibility before God to care for his world. How have we been doing with that? 
Well, depends. I mean, just listen. Some of you see your right wing fundamental. No, I'm just kidding. You're looking at this from the Environmental Protection Agency. That's not how I'm looking at this. You're looking at this by rigid. That's not how I'm looking at this. But should Christians be good stewards of God's world? Yes. Yes. But but that doesn't make you an environmentalist. No, no, no. But I'm using the the incendiary language of the 21st century to drive home a point. You see, we we should be leading in caring for God's world. I mean, when I was president, I traveled a lot in the Midwest and with farmers. And, and it was really neat to be around guys who, and well, gals too, I mean, but families who were really serious about, I mean, they're devout believers, but really serious about their business of farming, good stewards, using all the modern technology to care for their farm so that it doesn't, the topsoil isn't eroded, how to best use the, the fertilizers. I mean, just, it was, it's really neat. To, and every one of them that I would talk to from that perspective, they would see this as being a good steward of the farm God's given to him. That's being a dominion steward. That's being. However, you don't want to use the word environmentalist, use the word steward. And, you know, each, I don't know, I don't know a lot of you, so I don't know, but I'm assuming almost all of you, if not every one of you, owns a home, which means you have a little plot of land, you have a house on it, you have land. Does that mean you should be a good steward of that land? Yes. You should care for it. Why? Because... You have dominion authority over everything that God's created. I had my students in my ethics class read a a book um, by a guy named Andy Crouch. And the thesis of the book is that God is calling us to be creative cultivators with him. Creative Creative cultivators with him. We're going to read about that in the next chapter. God puts Adam and Eve, puts the first humans in a beautiful garden. Does does he see any boundaries? Does he say, I only want you to farm this. I only want you to do this. No, he doesn't say. He said, be stewards of my world. There's one thing I don't want you to do. I want you to do that tree because you're a moral being. But other than that, they had freedom. They had freedom to do what they had freedom to be creative cultivators with God. It's a a wonderful way to look at chapter 2 because it flows out of being Dominion stewards over God's world. But you see, when humans joined the rebellion, it made it much more difficult. I was out yesterday. I got home a little early. I had a couple of things I needed to do outside. And do you know what I saw in my one flower bed? A dandelion growing right. I couldn't believe it. A dandelion. So I went into my garage. I think I, think I have some Roundup here somewhere. And so I squirted that stupid dandelion. Because it tells us in Genesis chapter 3, one of the results of the fall was dandelions. It doesn't specifically say that, but it says weeds. It says, by the sweat of the brow, you will cultivate my world. It's a lot more difficult. But see, when you understand what is happening in Genesis 1, you understand God creating the structures and forms and orders of his world filling his world with life that has the capacity to reproduce itself. And it's the seas, the air, as well as the land. Plus he gives dominion steward to, stewardship to one part of his creation, his image bearers. Who are they? Humans. Who have the capacity to love him cultivate creatively out of love with him, which is what he wants. And when we just studied Revelation 21 and 22, in the new heaven and new earth, that's exactly what we'll be doing. Which is, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth, but that's, it's what God intended. He recreates and makes possible as he undoes the rebellion, undoes the curse, undoes all of the horrible things that that rebellion brought about. But God doesn't give up. He does not give up. But it has to be done where his perfections are preserved, his righteousness is honored, and his justice is honored, which is what the cross is all about. We celebrate this Friday.
Okay, now, I'm trying to really make this passage come alive for you to see why this is really, really important stuff. So I don't know if I'm achieving the objective or not. Any question? Um, when he knew what was going to happen, that the man would rebel, just even he has no limit uh, as far as knowledge. And yet, and we can say, well, why did he give man the option when he knew they were going to sin? But also, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it also show the grace that for those of us who sit around this, these tables today that we desire to learn this book and to do his will, and he knew that as well. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. you might see how he would be willing to do that knowing that some would totally reject him. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that... Well, yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, if God is going to create, now you've heard me say it this way, so let me say it again. God, we've talked about God is Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. In eternity, has there been love and communion for all eternity? Yes, love is God. First John chapter 4, twice, God is love. So when God made the decision to create, among the other reasons he created is his image bearers, the thought, what the Father and Son have enjoined for all eternity, love and communion, would now be a part of his image bearers. We have that capacity to love the same way he does. Sin distorts it, warps it. That's horrific, but God doesn't give up. He, that's what he wants to restore. It has to be on his terms. But if he is going to create image bearers who love him, love by its definition cannot be coerced. Can it? It can't be forced. That's not love. That's rape. And that's a horrible way to put it. But that's not what God is. So he has to create a world where there is the risk that his creation will rebel against him. And what happened? His creation rebelled against him. And at the same time, designated us as caretakers of That's right. And that's what we'll see that when we get to in the, in the chapters that follow. God does not take back that dominion responsibility. It still is the responsibility of the human race to care for his world. Doesn't that fit the uh, New Testament, too, where he Absolutely. commands us, tells us we are in his hands? That's right. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's refreshing. It's, I think, to me, it's a refreshing way to look at the word of God. And from day one, God knew exactly what he was doing. And although sin and rebellion interrupts it, he's, it's still his focus. He adds to the new heaven and new earth. All that is lost in Adam, this is what Paul says in Romans 5, all that is lost in Adam is restored in Christ. I just think that just, it makes everything, it knits everything in the word of God together. You really understand what's going on. And despite the horror of sin and rebellion, God is not going to give up. He is relentless in his grace. But people have to choose to love him and follow him. So, Well, although that doesn't work, this does. So I guess we better stop because it's going on 10 hours. So tomorrow what I want to do is pick up. I'm not done with verse 28 yet. So help to remind me. I want to start with verse 28. Idealistically, unrealistically, I thought I could finish this, but I didn't get it done today. And Woody, it's all your fault. No, no, it's not. It's, <laughs> you didn't have anything to do with it. It's all Fred's fault, Rob's fault, and all these other guys. No, I, nobody's fault. I'm, I love the questions. Please ask, keep asking the questions. Lord, I'm thankful for the Word of God. I, I can't imagine um, life enriching, purpose-filled joy-filled life without your word. It explains so much to us. We still see the, the, the horror of rebellion and sin, but we also, this weekend particularly, with Good Friday and Easter, we see your solution to the human condition, the solution to sin and rebellion of the human race. It's the cross. And that's what makes fellowship and love and communion with you possible. Because you had to deal with our sin, and that means you had to judge it, which is what you did on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
We praise you for that. That's why we call it Good Friday, even though it was the most horrific thing that's ever been done, the greatest act of injustice in a sense, because Jesus was totally innocent. But that is how you would redeem the human race from its sin. And you lay that gift on the table and you're asking humanity to pick it up. And in that is the joy and purpose, eternal life, the promise of fulfillment. And everything that was lost from sin is restored in Christ. So we are celebrating that as we remember it this weekend in the power and finality of the resurrection. Death is no longer authority over us. The penalty's been paid and eternal life is the promise for those who put their faith in your son. We rejoice in all that. We thank you for what we're studying, a very familiar, common, understood passage, but it's filled with insights that help us to understand the rest of the word of God and what you're really doing. Help us to enjoy and to appreciate as well as to apply this study to our lives. We want to continue to be transformed and understanding your perspective on all things is a way to that goal. So help us to have a wonderful time of celebration this weekend. We praise you and thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. See you next week.